Well, it's a privilege to be back in John chapter 18 again this day as we take another step in our journey through the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. This is a passage that <clears throat> reminds me of something that I've heard called the law of twos, T-W-O, the law of twos, a motif in Scripture. In other words, we frequently find in Scripture that there are two choices facing people when it comes to the direction that they're going to take in life, two choices when it comes to their relationship to God and to truth. And by speaking in terms of two, a contrast is therefore clearly presented. Now, we find this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, Psalm 1 comes to mind, a favorite psalm of many, You'll remember that in Psalm 1, we find two different kinds of people there. We find the blessed man and the wicked man. It says the blessed man is the one who loves the truth, loves God's word, and meditates on it and seeks to apply it to his life. But there is the the other man, the wicked man. It says it's not so about him. He doesn't love truth, and because that, he's headed for judgment. What a contrast between those two individuals. In the New Testament... Uh, My mind is drawn to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, where we find Christ uh, talking about the two ways. There is the narrow way that few find, relatively speaking, and the broad way that most people find. The narrow way leads to life because it's the way of the truth and the way of following Christ. There is the broad way that leads to death and judgment because it is the way, the road of rejecting truth and rejecting salvation in Christ. He goes on in chapter 7 then to talk about the two trees. There's the good tree that brings forth good fruit. There's the bad tree that brings forth, obviously, bad fruit. And that section concludes with uh, a discussion of the two types of foundations, the two foundations. There is the house. It's a metaphor for a person's life. But there is the house that is built upon the rock, It withstands the storms, and there is the house that's built upon the sand that collapses. The law of twos. But there is another example of this way of speaking in Scripture according to this so-called law of twos, and that is the fact that there are only two kingdoms that one can be a citizen of. It's worded different ways, described different ways. It is the kingdom of light on one hand, And opposed to that is the kingdom of darkness. Using other biblical concepts, it is called the kingdom of God on one hand and the kingdom of the world on the other hand. Well, in our passage, our next passage of John chapter 18, we do find an example of that idea, the two uh, conflicting and contrasting kingdoms. The Jewish religious leaders, along with a Roman official named Pilate, they represent the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of darkness. Jesus represents, obviously, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of truth, or the kingdom of God. Our specific passage today is John 18, verses 28 to 38, 28 to 38. This passage presents to us the trial of Jesus before the Roman official named Pilate, John 18, 28 to 38. Now, as a 
quick review, we saw last week, after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his death, he was taken to an initial hearing before uh, an influential man named Annas. He was bound, taken to this trial at Annas' house. Annas was a man who had at one time been the high priest. The high priest is the uh, the chief officer or the ruler, the president, if you will, of the ruling body over Judaism called the Sanhedrin. We also learned that when the arresting party took Jesus to Annas' house, that two of Jesus' disciples who were with him when he was arrested followed that arresting party at a distance all the way to Annas' house, but they remained in the courtyard outside. And while Jesus was remaining faithful to the truth inside the house, even though he was being unjustly accused, Peter stayed outside in the courtyard. And while he was there, we learned last time, we were reminded that tragically he three times denied that he even knew the Lord. Well, then Jesus was taken across that courtyard to another house, the house of a man named Caiaphas, who was the official high priest at that time. And there Jesus was tried a second time. At that second unjust trial, Mark chapter 14 lets us know that the high priest, Caiaphas, asked Jesus whether he was the Christ, whether he claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus admitted that he was. He did claim that because he was. And on that basis, he was convicted of being a blasphemer. Matthew chapter 26 reports that it was decided at that second trial that Jesus should definitely die. And all of that took place in the middle of the night. Well, then the Sanhedrin, that ruling body, some of them at least were in that second trial at at that trial at Caiaphas's house, but certainly that group of the Sanhedrin and maybe the rest of them then reconvened for a third trial. That was around daybreak, reconvened for a third trial, and in that trial, the verdict was formally pronounced and even the sentence pronounced. Listen to Matthew 27, verse 1. Now when morning came, All the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And once that charge was officially articulated at that third meeting, Jesus was then brought to be tried in a Roman court by a Roman ruler named Pilate. In our passage today, John picks up the story at that point. Now, I've mentioned to you in a previous sermon or so that John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, did choose to leave out some details, certain details of the life and ministry of Jesus, details that are covered in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For example, we saw that John chose not to write about that second trial before Caiaphas. Neither did he write about that additional third meeting of the Sanhedrin. We go to the synoptics to get information about those events. But occasionally, John actually gives us more details about some event and some subject. And such is the case with Jesus' trial before Pilate. On this topic, 
John reports far more details than do the three synoptics combined. Now, John did not actually go into the courtroom there before Pilate. So the question comes up sometimes, how did he get all those details? Well, the bottom line is we don't know what sources he utilized and so forth. I will say this, D.A. Carson makes several suggestions that it is certainly possible, for example, that after the resurrection, when Jesus was meeting with his followers for a while before he returned to heaven, Jesus himself could have told John some of the details or perhaps some of the court attendants who were inside there when Jesus was tried before Pilate, perhaps they came to Christ, some did, and then perhaps they reported their recollections to the apostles. Finally, what happened in that official Roman trial would have been recorded and documented, and some of those court records were made public to people just like they are today. It's possible that John may have done the research necessary to get some of these details. Of course, ultimately, we know this. John was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had told the disciples that the Spirit would come and give them information, teach them, and even recall to their mind things that they had already learned and so forth. So at the end of the day, we know it's inspired Scripture. In any case, John did obtain these details and he chose to record them in the fourth gospel in John chapter 18. Now, as we go through what John has provided about the trial before Pilate, we will find that the dominant theme running through this whole set of 11 verses is a theological one. It's speaking of the kingdom. That's a very important theme in this passage, the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Along with that is the authority that Jesus has in that kingdom because he is the king of that kingdom, which means that as we go through this narrative, it is Jesus himself who takes center stage. Center stage is not Pilate, it's not the Jewish religious leaders, it's Jesus, the king, and the nature of his kingdom. So with all that said, here's how we're going to mark our progress through this account, John chapter 18, verses 28 to 38, the trial before Pilate. It divides into two clear-cut sections. So we'll just call them that. Section one, Pilate's interaction with the Jews, very simple. And number two, Pilate's interaction with Jesus. That's the overall structure of this narrative. It is in that second section, though, that that theme, that theological theme of Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' authority, as well as the conflict between that kingdom and the kingdom of the world, it's in the second section that all of that becomes most prominent. Today, though, we're only going to look at section one. That's verses 28 to 32. It's a technical section, really. It does, though, set the stage for the conflict between the two kingdoms that we'll get to in section two next week. So here's section one, the interaction with the Jews. Now, within this section, though, we can break it down further, and we'll do that. We note together today three components that form this first section. Here's the first component of section one, we'll call it number one, the cultural necessity. I seek to put labels on things like this that actually help the interpretation of it. So we understand what this part of the section is really all about. 
Well, this first part of the section is about this component. Number one, the cultural necessity. Let's see what that necessity was. Verse 28, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. Now that pronoun they refers to the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, in other words, and Caiaphas, they were under Caiaphas's leadership. He may not have actually been with them, but under his leadership, these Jewish religious leaders definitely form the they here. That group led Jesus to a place called the Praetorium, the Praetorium. Now, that is a term that was used in their culture to refer to headquarters of some type. It could refer to the headquarters of a military commander. Uh, This word would be used to refer to the headquarters of a governor of a region, like the governor of Judea. And that's how it's being used here. It refers in in this verse to the headquarters of the Roman governor. Now, the praetorium was not the governor's headquarters all the time. Most of the year, normally, his headquarters were in another city, not Jerusalem, another city called Caesarea. But the governor, whoever was the governor at the time, would at times move over to Jerusalem, especially during important Jewish feasts, because during those feasts, the city would swell with more people. There was a possibility of more troublesome disturbances and riots and so forth, And so the governor would be there to give leadership in case they needed to put down some of those disturbances. When he's in Jerusalem, his headquarters was this place called the Praetorium. There's a couple of, just interesting to me at least, there's a couple of different possible locations for this Praetorium. Herod had a palace uh, at the Western Wall uh, there in Jerusalem. The Praetorium could have been there or the Praetorium could have been just northwest of the temple complex in in a place called the a fortress of Antonia, named after Mark Antony, uh, and it actually, you could see the, uh, the temple precincts from that location, the northwest side, and there were steps even going from the fortress of Antonia to the temple precincts. Uh, many tend to believe it was in this fortress of Antonio where you found the headquarters. But nevertheless, regardless, Jesus was taken to these headquarters, the Praetorium, verse 28 says, and it was early. That's an ambiguous team term. How early? Well, the word itself was commonly used in their culture to refer to the fourth watch of the night, which was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. At that time in history, the Roman officials would begin their duties like uh, adjudicating court cases and things like that. They would start that day and all those duties at dawn so that they could finish up with all that work by late morning and be done for the day. Well, the Jewish religious leaders, they were familiar with that schedule that the Roman governor would have kept, so they would have made sure they gotten Jesus to this praetorium right after dawn because the governor is going to begin his day. They wanted to get Jesus on the docket early. They wanted a sentence to be pronounced by the Roman governor early. They wanted Jesus to be executed quickly, even before people in the city even knew what happened. Mark confirms all this as well, by the way, that the Sanhedrin had completed that little third formal session, past judgment, in order to get him to the governor very early. Here's Mark 15, verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation 
And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. So you can just visualize this. Just after sunrise, the Jewish authorities arrive on the scene with Jesus. He's bound. They arrive at Pilate's headquarters. What's interesting is something cultural for them, something religious for them. They would not enter Pilate's headquarters. They refused to go inside themselves. And instead, they chose to remain outside while the trial was going on inside. They remained outside in the colonnade area. In other words, there were columns there. And it all had to do with not wanting to violate guidelines necessary to their religion, their culture. Verse 28 goes on to say this, And they themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. Their concern was about becoming unclean if they went in there. Ceremonial uncleanliness. In particular, if they violated certain guidelines, they would not be able then to participate in Passover. And they did hope to eat the Passover meal later that day, which was, now this is early morning, on Friday. So they had to be concerned about avoiding anything that would cause them to become ceremonially unclean. Now, there were many conditions, many situations, many actions that could cause some level of uncleanness. You get a view of that, for example, in Leviticus chapter 15 and Leviticus chapter 22. There we find that some forms of defilement could be removed just by taking a a ritual bath at the end of the day. At sundown, that would take care of it. There is a written document called the Mishnah, the written uh, collection of Jewish oral tradition. That collection called the uh, Mishnah does mention several types of pollutions that could defile only for one day. But as you read the text here, and observe what the Jews' actions were in verse 28, we must assume that the defilement they were concerned about was one far more serious than something on a list that would defile you for one day. Something that you could be, a defilement that could be removed just by a ritual bath at the end of the day. For example, if a Jew contracted uncleanness because they entered an actual Gentile house, then that defile, that defilement lasted longer. They were defiled for seven days, just entering a Gentile's house. So they were not going to go in Pilate's Jerusalem house here. He's a Gentile. Why did they take a view like that about Gentiles. Why was entering a Gentile home so defiling? Glad you asked. Because the Jews believed that Gentiles buried aborted fetuses, which would mean dead bodies, in their homes when that happened. Or they suspected that they even flushed them down whatever drain system they had in their technology and culture at that time in history. They're very familiar with what Numbers chapter 9 says. Numbers 9, 7, and 10 insist that contact with a dead body 
in any way is a seven-day defilement. So that would mean that at the time of Passover, they would not be able to participate in the feast. By the way, I did say they had hoped to eat the Passover meal that day. It was Friday. And yet we saw earlier in John, starting in John chapter 13, all that's been going on that night before Jesus' death, when he met with his disciples in the upper room, it's what we call Thursday. I explained at that time, though, that by Jewish reckoning, a day begins at 6 p.m. So after 6 p.m. on what we call Thursday night, it became Friday for the Jew. And that lasted till 6 p.m. on Friday then. And then at 6 p.m. on Friday, it became Saturday to them, which would be the Sabbath. So they really did. Jesus and the disciples ate it on Friday, the day Passover day. And these religious leaders hoped to do the same thing, to eat the Passover meal. I should clarify something, though, about the context here and how Passover is being used here. It refers to more than just the one day and the single Passover meal itself. It refers to that meal and the following seven days, which was another feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There is evidence in Scripture that the term Passover could refer to the combination. Here's one example of that. Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Listen carefully. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. Why? They were connected. Passover and then the feast of unleavened bread. So back to our text. Here's something important to notice here. It's an astounding example of irony if you observe it. Here these religious leaders were were very concerned about becoming defiled ceremonially and not being able to participate in the feast called Passover, not only the meal, Passover, but then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, while at the same time they were busy manipulating the Jewish legal system in order to get rid of Jesus, who the Scriptures say was the fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment of Passover and these feasts. It was Jesus. What irony. Get rid of Jesus so we can partake of the feast. Jesus, the fulfillment of the feast. But it's not only an example of irony, it's an example of inconsistency and hypocrisy. They're exemplifying a twisted legalistic mindset. And in that legalistic mindset, they were thinking, and making such a big deal about the ceremonial defilement that would happen if they entered a Gentile's house while at the same time seeking to violate God's law and commit murder, the murder of God's son. Think about it. Ceremonial defilement is something superficial compared to the extreme moral defilement involved in rejecting Christ, condemning him to death, It's a good illustration of the problem with legalism. Just as a side note here, legalism, it's a false spirituality. It's a focus on externals, a focus on things that are superficial as opposed to genuine heart issues. Back to our text, these religious leaders wouldn't go inside all because they were following these necessary religious and cultural guidelines concerning ceremonial defilement because they wanted to participate in the feast. And that brings us to the second component, component of section one. It surfaces now, we'll call it number two, the veiled agenda. 
the veiled agenda. Now, before we continue, just remember that these Jewish leaders all along the way have been filled with jealousy about Jesus because of Jesus' popularity with the people. They were filled with envy. They were filled with hatred of Jesus. And because of that hatred, all along the way, we have found them in the Gospel of John plotting to kill Jesus. Here's a few examples of that. John chapter 5, verse 18. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That just stirred up hatred in their hearts for for Jesus. John 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea at that time because the Jews were seeking to kill him. One more, John 11, verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. The problem was that their murderous plan was continually being frustrated along the way every time. And that reminds us of that little phrase we heard more than once in John. Why was it their plans being frustrated? Because it wasn't God's time yet. Listen to John 7 verse 30. So they were seeking to seize Jesus and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not come. John 8 verse 20. No one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So what's different now? Now. It's the time in God's timing for Jesus to be arrested, Jesus to be tried, Jesus to be sentenced. So with the help of Judas Iscariot, the traitor, these from a human vantage point, they had managed to seize Jesus and sentence him to death. But here's the problem. They still had no power to carry out the sentence of execution. The Romans did not permit them to execute anyone as verse 31 will clarify in a moment. So it was important what was going on here for these Jewish religious leaders to get Jesus to to Pilate as soon as possible, to get the Roman governor to sign off on their plans. But that was not going to be easy. And the reason is the primary concern the Jews had about Jesus was theological in nature. He was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be the promised Messiah. That's not an argument in Pilate's court. Pilate cared nothing about those kinds of things. He cared nothing for the Jews. He cared nothing for religious issues, cared nothing for their idiosyncrasies. He cared nothing for their customs. So the religious leaders would need to make the governor think Jesus was a different kind of threat. He was a political threat which means they were not telling the governor their real concerns here. But hiding that from him while they tried to make Jesus look dangerous in a physical or a a political way. Now that's what we see happening next. Verse 29. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Now this is the first time in the narrative that Pilate's name is actually provided for us. This is the man, Pontius Pilate is how we know him. We know a lot about him from Scripture and from historical sources. We know that he was a proud man. He was an arrogant man. He was a cynical man. He was a vacillating man. 
He was a man who was morally weak, and he sought to hide all these flaws behind his stubbornness and his cruelty. He would be brutal in carrying out some of his policies. Now, he was appointed to this position, governor of Judea, by Tiberius Caesar in the year 26 AD, which means he had been in this position for about four years at the time of what we're reading. He held it until year 37. He had held on to his power, though, for this length of time by using force, the great military force of Rome. And since the Roman soldiers all had to be paid, Pilate relied upon heavily taxing the people, which they loved. No, they didn't love that. His policies were rude, brutal, savage sometimes, unfeeling. And so all his policies ended up earning him the hatred of the Jewish people. And at times, some would become so outraged that they would, in small groups, revolt. And then Pilate would always brutally put down and suppress those revolts and those protests. Now, we will see this more next week, but I'll go ahead and say something now. Pilate is a representative of the kingdom of this world. So are the Jewish religious leaders. But Pilate, as a government leader, definitely is a picture of of rulers in the world who, who don't know the Lord and don't know truth. Pilate was like many worldly leaders throughout history who rely on power and force and brutality or rely upon injustice and just prestige that they built up in the minds of people. Today, we've perfected that further and rulers depend on propaganda, twisted propaganda and lies and manipulation of the press, technology and economics and all of that. Those are the resources that rulers in the kingdom of this world utilize to exert their rule. And Pilate was like that. So again, no love lost between him and the Jews. Yet, here they were. They had to bring Jesus to Pilate in order to get the conviction that they needed and the sentencing and the execution. That was their agenda. That's what they were there for. They needed Pilate to just rubber stamp their plans. So when they brought Jesus to Pilate, that's what they were fully expecting. They're just going to make a quick effort of all this. Here he is. Pilate, you know, here's what he's done. Rubber stamp this. Get Pilate to automatically go along with their agenda and the verdict they had already reached. Then Jesus would be swiftly executed. However, they were in for a surprise. Pilate had a different agenda. He did not go along so easily as they expected. In fact, when he came out to them, he asked them a question. And that question signaled that he was going to conduct a new trial. That's how the Roman courts did it. When a legal proceeding would begin, there would be the declaration of the charges. So the Jews got what Pilate was doing when he asked that question that Pilate was proceeding to verify now the facts of the case. And notice that our verse says that he went out to meet them where they were waiting. Again, we already saw that. The Jewish authorities refused to enter the praetorium. So he had to go out. You can almost see him sort of shuttling back and forth maybe at times. 
Inside, where Jesus was. Outside, where the accuser stood. But this is what they expected. Just hear a quick charge, rubber stamp it, get on to the next case. What made the Jews think Pilate would just rubber stamp their plans? Well, it's because Pilate already knew all of this. He knew what they were wanting. He knew what Jesus was being accused of. Keep in mind that the Roman troops had already been involved in arresting Jesus. There were the religious leaders who were there that night, the officers. But in the garden, we said there was at least a 200 or so Roman soldiers. Pilate had to sign off for that. So that means that the Jewish authorities had already communicated something about this case to Pilate in advance. Otherwise, the troops would not have been involved. So they arrive, expecting Pilate to just go along with them and sentence Jesus to death. And instead, Pilate orders a fresh hearing over which he was going to preside. And that was going to be a problem now for the Jews. They knew that their real charge against Jesus was a theological one. And that claim would not stand up in a Roman court, in a real trial. So the Jews tried to quickly head this off. Here's one thing they say, verse 30. They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. I mean, that's a little bit of an attempt to just say, just don't worry about all that. Just, just rubber stamp this and let's get on with it. But Pilate did want to know more. And Luke chapter 23 tells us then some more things that they had to say. John doesn't give us the Jews' full reply. Here's Luke 23 verse 2. So here's what they had to say. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Look at all the political charges they threw out there. Misleading, suppressing the nation. Telling people not to pay their taxes. He says he's the king. They tried to make political charges that would fit with Pilate's agenda. And those claims were outright lies. Jesus hadn't done anything to mislead or subvert the nation of Israel. Any time along the way that people tried to push him into that position of being a, a military or political leader, he, he said no. And when it came to taxes, what did he actually teach the people? Luke 20, verse 25. And he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Most specifically, pay your taxes. So the Jews were making all these false charges thinking that this is what it was going to take to make their scheme work. However, casting their case in these political categories that Pilate could understand, that's what they thought, it did not work. Pilate saw through all this. And he was was able to understand their disrespectful assumption that he was just going to follow their agenda. So here's what he fired back, verse 31. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your own law. Much to the chagrin of the religious leaders, Pilate was not going along with their agenda at all. He was tired of their vague charges. He was tired of their manipulative talk. And he simply told them that they could just handle the case themselves in their own court system. And that forced the Jews to admit what Pilate already knew, their true agenda. Why did they want Pilate? They finally say it, verse 31. We are not permitted to put anyone to death. 
Now, in reality, the Old Testament law did give the Jews the right to capital punishment. Capital punishment is supported in Scripture. And the Jews had, the leaders had that power. The method they would use, the normal method, was stoning someone to death. That's why later on in Acts chapter 7, the mob sort of reverted to what they were accustomed to in the history of their nation, stoning, and they stoned Stephen. But the Romans had taken away the right of capital punishment around the year 6 AD. So this was what was really going on. These religious leaders were strictly trying to manipulate the system, trying to manipulate Pilate to get what they wanted, desperately wanted, and that was Jesus to be executed. And that fact leads to the third component that surfaces here in section one, number three, the fulfilled prophecy. Like I said, the way the Jews executed someone back when they were allowed to do so was by stoning. The Romans didn't do that. The manner of execution for the Romans was crucifixion. And it was necessary. It was important that Jesus be crucified, not stoned. Which is why John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, adds a note of commentary now in the narrative. Or to say it differently, now John lets us know that there was a deeper significance to the exchange between Pilate and the Jews that we just briefly looked at. Here were the Jews thinking they were in control of everything. Here was the Pilate thinking he was in control. In reality, neither Pilate nor the Jews were in control. Someone else was. John tells us in all of this, God was sovereignly at work, ensuring that these trials would happen, ensuring that Jesus would die a certain way by crucifixion, because that was the manner foretold. Verse 32, to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Once again, we've seen this along the way in John. Jesus told his disciples through a very uh, picturesque way of saying it, that the method of his death was going to be crucifixion, and crucifixion was something only the Romans employed. Listen to some of those statements. You'll remember these. John 3, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, lifted up, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's describing crucifixion. John 8, 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And then one more, John 12, 32 and 33. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this, John writes, to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Did you know that Jesus not only predicted that he would die this way, prophesied this, he also foretold that he would die at the hands of Gentiles? Listen to Mark 10, 33 and 34. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Trial number one with Annas, Caiaphas, Sanhedrin. And then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they, the Gentiles, will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. 
Jesus had foretold this. It's all coming to pass just as he foretold. Of course, we know that the Old Testament as well prophesied this kind of death. We don't have time to go into it, but if you really study Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 for sure, you see this kind of death prophesied. So John is saying that the entire series of events, I mean, think about this, how God's sovereignty works. Entire series of events, including the fact that the Romans had taken away the Jews' right to exercise capital punishment in the year 6 AD. Who was in charge of that? God. Ensuring something that would happen 24 years later. Remember that verse? That the hearts of the kings are in God's hands. He turns them whichever way he wants. We need to remember that today. It's true of Pilate. true of Herod. true today. It also includes this, that only the Romans then had to sanction capital punishment. That was all part of God's plan. It was all simply God orchestrating everything to bring about the fulfillment of prophecy. God providentially controlling events to ensure his promises and his prophetic words would come to pass. Like I said, it's kind of a technical passage, except for that very profound Commentary by John. But what a scene this trial was. Here you have Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, sitting in a place of judgment. And he's the one that's supposed to decide the fate of Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, this Jesus who's from Nazareth, this one who had been arrested, convicted by the Sanhedrin of blasphemy. And all the time, Pilate didn't understand, he didn't appreciate it, that his meeting with Jesus that he was thrown into here involved a clash of two kingdoms, the one that he represented and the one that Jesus represents. Two different value systems. While Pilate decided Jesus' fate in earthly terms, what was going on, Pilate's eternal judgment was being determined by his relationship to that prisoner, Jesus Christ. We're going to see all that in more detail in section two next time. Today, we have the joy of observing the Lord's table here to commemorate and remember and celebrate the fact of what God orchestrated to happen, that Jesus was indeed crucified, not stoned, on a cross outside Jerusalem, so that the sins of his people were paid for, so that sinners can be saved. We're remembering that today as we ponder that little commentary by the author, John. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this little passage that is so technical in some ways, just outlining the events of what happened in a trial so long ago. But Lord, we thank you for the reminder of what is so important that we are to trust you that you are the sovereign God, and that no man can thwart your will, regardless of what the Jewish leaders tried to do, regardless of what Pilate was thinking. All of that was just part of your providence unfolding. So, Lord, we know that you haven't changed. You're the same today. All that goes on is somehow part of your design, somehow related to your will for your people and your redemptive plan in history. 
We thank you that you even overturn evil and wickedness and still use it for your good redemptive plan and the good of your people. So, Lord, we confess that there are those times where we fret and worry and are anxious and we forget the kind of God you are. We get our eyes on the events and things of the world and the tragedies of the world and think that this is all there is. But Lord, thank you for drawing us up out of the muck and mire of that, the sinking sand of the world, to remind us that we are those, if we claim to be your followers, that we are those who have our feet set upon solid ground. We're the ones who have built our house upon the rock because we have chosen to follow Christ and obey him, our Lord. Father, thank you for that reminder. I pray as we celebrate this table, the Lord's Supper, that we would remember that it was for our sins that he was crucified. Those of us who know Christ, it was for our sins so that we could be saved. May we rest in that. May we rejoice in that. May we even be convicted again of our own sinfulness and frailty as we remember our need for the Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.